Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, hello, and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. We are doing it virtually like we've been doing for the last six months now. My name is Raj Mathai. I will be your moderator tonight. I'm also the lead anchor at NBC Bay Area. As the club continues to do virtual events, right, it is the sign of the times. Uh, We are grateful for the continued support of our members and our donors. We hope that you will also consider making a donation online, or you can simply text us, text the word donate to 415-329-4231. I'm pleased to welcome John Mackey, the co-founder and CEO of Whole Foods Market. John has always been a leader with great awareness, integrity, and humility. And actually, I read his book just recently. It really pops out. This is a business leader, but also someone that really wants to lead by example, almost to a soulful purpose here. Since 1980, Whole Foods has been an incredible growth and innovation, has seen so much growth and innovation, including its acquisition, or as John likes to say, its its marriage uh, with Amazon. In his new book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business, John reflects on his own vision, virtues, mindset, and leadership in both business and society. Uh, We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and we invite you to be part of this discussion. We want to hear your questions and your comments. We'll send it directly to John. So, we can talk about it as a community forum like we do at the Commonwealth Club. So without further ado, uh, by the way, you can do it right there in that chat function uh, on the right of your screen. So without further ado, let's try to bring in John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods Market. John, nice to see you today. Good to see you too, Raj. So I guess nowadays, before we talk about anything, it's just kind of the way we are in society now. How you doing? How you feeling? And are you staying optimistic through all of this? I'm personally, my health is good. In fact, my health is really good because COVID is a wake-up call to get your immune system stronger, and I'm super healthy right now. I'm, I had a got back just recently from a nine-day backpacking trip on the Pacific Crest Trail up in Washington. It was very beautiful, so I feel very fit, and uh, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, but 2020 sucks. It's been the worst year of my life. I, I think that's probably true for many people. Uh, in America, millions and millions of people. It's been a terrible year. It's been very challenging. And uh, we, we still got four months to go. So uh, I'm looking forward to turning that calendar page. Yeah, I think you speak for a lot of us. It's interesting just who you are and what you do for a living being at a, you know, at, at a market, something that we all go to every day or every week. You really see Americans on the ground floor. Um, when you go into your own markets or just talk to your employees, what is the sense that you're getting? Is it just gosh, we got to get to 2021, or is there some deeper sense and emotions that are coming out? Well, it varies a lot around the country, right? I mean, Whole Foods is a pretty, it's in all the major cities in the U.S. And, and uh, well, um, people are afraid. The COVID's got people really shook up and they're scared. And um, our stores have always prided themselves on being places that people like to come and hang out. And now everybody's masked up. We got social distancing. Don't, you know, stay six feet away from everybody. So people, they're either shopping online. Our sales have tripled online in the last year. Or they are, they have come in with a list and they grab their food and it's just a transaction and they get out. So it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have that magical (laughs) experience that I think Whole Foods is somewhat famous for. So um, the team members, it's been difficult. I mean, they've, they've got to wear masks every day for, you know, while on their shift for eight hours and they got to go temperature checks every day. And um, they're not they're supposed to be social distancing, so they can't connect with people as well. It's, it's been a more difficult, it's been a difficult year for everybody, but you know what, they have jobs and uh, um, so many people haven't, don't have jobs. So many, so many of my friends have lost their businesses and the economic shutdown. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a painful year for, for a lot of folks. And there, you know, obviously a lot of people have died as well. So it's been, yeah. an, it's been a very difficult year. Uh, you, you talk about just people coming in there with their grocery list. I would ask this for, for any leader of a grocery store, Safeway, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Prices are, have gone up considerably in these last four to six months. What's the easy explanation for that? Um, supply chain problems. Um, and it's, it's like supply hasn't been, it, it's been difficult to get the supply. And we forget food, the grocery stores don't make the food. I mean, we don't grow the veg- fruits and vegetables or we don't 
bring the meat and seafood there. You have to get that from farmers and ranchers and fishermen and, and uh, uh, they've been affected by this virus as well. And, and uh, uh, there's been such a shift in the supply chain. I mean, think about it. I mean, so many Americans used to eat out. I mean, 50% of our, a lot of people's meals were eaten out and, and that just pretty much disappeared completely. Whole foods is prepared foods and our stores dropped 75% when COVID got all of our salad bars, all of our hot foods, self-serve bars, they were all shut down. So there's been a huge change in people's habits. People are cooking more at home. And uh, I just think a lot of that food inflation has been due to a supply crunch uh, and competition for it. So I, I think it's it's there everywhere and, and that'll settle back down again as we get normalized again. Hey, John, you wrote this book recently. Uh, first of all, you're a busy guy. Why sit down, write this book? Uh, I know it's not an ego thing. From everything I know about you, you're not an ego guy. Uh, why write this book? Who are you, who you trying to help, and, and what's the real goal here? Well, one way to view this book is, uh, I'll give you a couple perspectives. One is, is that it's a sequel to Conscious Capitalism, which was printed, which published 17, I mean, seven years ago, back in 2013. And that's kind of helped start a movement. Um, we have a nonprofit, ConsciousCapitalism.org, and, and it's a lot of people are thinking of themselves as conscious capitalists. But the business people, they want to know how to be more effective as a conscious leader. It's one thing to have a theory about being a conscious capitalist, but how do you live it? How do you do it in your own business? And we have two chapters in Conscious Capitalism on uh, <clears throat> conscious leadership. And I get asked the most questions about that. And so it, it became more and more obvious to me that people wanted a lot more about conscious leadership. And, you know, I've been doing this business for 42 years. So, and I've had my own journey, right? My own personal journey of, of becoming more conscious, growing, learning, making mistakes, making a lot of mistakes and learning from them. So this was kind of a download of what I've learned to share with people. It's partly what you leave behind. It's partly just helping the world try to be a better place, a more conscious place. CEOs don't, CEOs don't really last for 40 years. What's, <laughs> what, what did you do and what are you doing? I started my own business. That's one way you can last. <laughs> Even ones that start their own business, as you know. In fact, we'll get into some of the points where you had some dark days at Whole Foods where, where you thought you might be blown out. What did you do? Well, one way to think about it, and I do think about it this way, and I, an entrepreneur creates a business is kind of like creating children. Whole Foods is like a child and I don't have any biological children. So Whole Foods is my child. That's how I think about it. And it's, you know, part of it's just taking care of it and helping it grow and reach its highest potential. And, and, uh, uh, you know, if you'd, if you told me back when we started up, when I was 24, when I started the business, if you'd asked me, told me, you know, 42 years later, still going to be doing this. I probably would have run away. And said, the hell I am. No way. I'm getting out right now because I got lots of other things to do. But the years have gone by rapidly. So, and I've had so much fun. I will tell you, building a business is very hard, but it's very, it's a lot of fun too. It's very rewarding. And I've watched people start out with the company as teenagers or 20 years old and watch them rise up and, and grow and, and get promoted and earn more money and buy houses and raise children and ra have grandchildren. Uh, that's, that's been so satisfying. So it's just been, it's been a great adventure for me. Is it, you know, I mean, I'm not making any predictions, but it's going to come to an end sometime in the next few years. Just, you know, I'm just getting too old to do it. You talked about one thing that stood out. A few things stood out of the book for me. January 2001. Take us through this. Transformative day as you arrived in Florida for a board of directors meeting, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, quote, I went from riding the momentum of my natural skills to becoming a truly conscious CEO. What does that mean? And what happened January 2001 in Florida? Because there was a thought that you might be on your way out. Right. Um, that's the very introduction of the book. And, and uh, there was a coup, there's no other way to put it. I had uh, <clears throat> one of my senior leaders who'd worked with, with, I'd worked with him for 16 years and uh, uh, thought he was a friend. And uh, there were, he, he worked with a couple of the board members 
we had done a, uh, we started our own internet company called wholepeople.com back in the dot-com boom. And then that turned into a bust and we sold off, that sold off the, what was left of it. Uh, and uh, while I was working on that, I moved to Boulder, Colorado and, and, and he stayed in Austin and he, he, he got used to kind of running the company. And when I, we, I came back and he really wanted to keep running it, I think. And, and uh, a couple of directors didn't like me and, and uh, they tried to basically get me out and it failed. The board rallied around me and those two directors left and that executive left, but it was a total wake up call for me. I, I, it helped crisis is the greatest opportunity we have in life to grow. And generally in a crisis, people are afraid. And so they want to go back to a safe place. And I found in life that it's far better to lean into the crisis. It's far better to <clears throat> open yourself wider and lean into it. And if you do, you have a great opportunity to become more than you were before. It's just the best opportunity you have, but it's scary because you're in no man's land. You're, you've never been there before. It could, you could fail. You could fall. It's, it's very scary. This, uh, this could be more timely because we are in a crisis right now, nationally and internationally. Crisis. You also wrote about the, the post 9-11 crisis where Hotels.com was born and other things. What kind of things are you seeing now that, we could, that could be born from this current crisis that we're in? This is one of, if, in my lifetime, I would say in the United States, this is the biggest crisis America has faced in my lifetime. And uh, uh, people are scared. They're scared of COVID. They're scared of fires. They're scared of, of riots. Uh, people are frightened. And uh, there's great divisiveness in the country. There's different political views and they're banging against each other. And so in some sense, I think our book is timely because what America needs is more conscious leaders, conscious leaders in business, conscious leaders in, in politics, in education, in healthcare, in the military. We need leaders who will lead with love. We need leaders who will look for win, win, win solutions, try to find the higher ground that can unite Americans instead of us going to war with each other. I'm not saying that's easy, but that's what the times call for. And we need people to step up. We need conscious leaders to get up and lead and to get out there and try to bring more love to this situation and more, more looking for ways that we can all win and move forward together. And it's very challenging times right now, but that, we, that's, what, that's what's being called for. Conscious leadership's being called for right now. And that's why I think our book is very timely. You do talk about love in this book and just loving your journey, uh, loving your colleagues. Is that something, is it, is it something that works? Is it tangible or is it kind of something like, oh, okay, there's John again, he's doing his meditation, he's growing his hair out long or whatever there is. Does it really work in this day and age? It does work and it works, it works at Whole Foods. We've been doing it for a long time, 40 plus years. And, uh, you know, one of the 100 best companies to work for for 20 consecutive years. Um, uh, Whole Foods is a special place. It's not perfect. I'm not holding it up as a saint or the utopia because it's not. But we've, we have a lot of love released in our company. And I, I talk about how we end all our meetings with appreciations, which is a gateway to opening up to love. And we practice, we team member happiness is one of our core values at our company. So we're constantly seeking ways to help people to flourish in the company. That there's this, we'll call it a myth out there, because I think it's a myth that somehow or another business is this cutthroat competitive thing, and you can't care about anybody else. It's just a bunch of greedy bastards running around trying to make as much money as possible. And that, that may be true for some people, sociopaths, but that's not the way most organizations operate. Most, op, most, most businesses, are they're creating value for all their stakeholders. They're creating value for their customers, for their employees, for their suppliers, for their investors, for the communities that they're part of. It's not a win-lose paradigm. It's a win-win-win. It's a win-win-win. That's the essence of what business is about. It's just not seen that way. And business people themselves sometimes don't see it that way. But that's how Whole Foods operates. And that's that's... That's what we're trying to communicate in the book. There's a better, a different and better way to be in the world. 
truth-telling stood out to me. You brought up a, a story about Ford Motor Company and, and, and how they perhaps weren't being quite direct and honest with their employees, and then they flipped a switch. What was the switch, and, and how did it happen? Well, they got a new CEO, and, and, and that story, the, the new, CEO, new CEO, Ford was losing a ton of money, but when, they would, when they, he would be going through the reports, on their goals, they'd be showing all this green, like they're being very successful and not a, not a lot of red. And uh, and he said, "This is this is bullshit. This how how can we be losing all this money every year and have all this all these goals be green? This is dishonest." And so he brought a new way of thinking to the organization that brought integrity back and truth telling. And uh, that ended up being transformative for Ford at that time. It's difficult just in this political and not just the president, but all, a lot of po politicians. It, there, there's one set of fact and then there's another set that they might tell the public. How do you navigate trying to tell CEOs and coach businesses through this when, when the political landscape is so questionable nowadays? You know, I think it's easier for business people. When I, when I talk about this, business people, remember, they are dealing with stakeholders every day. And so the, the, the paradigm that needs to shift is that the, that the stakeholders are kind of struggling with one another. It's this win-lose framework that some are winning and some are losing. It's this, pola it's, this, it's this polarity of opposites that if you get rich, somebody else is getting poor. If you're successful, somebody else is losing. And that's not the way business generally operates. Business is operating most of the time where you have multiple winners. So customers are winning. They're trading with the business voluntarily for their own gain. And businesses are incented to give customers better pricing, good service, high quality, or they'll go shop at a competitor. So businesses create value for their customers. They, they can't create value for their customers if they're not creating value for their employees because the employees are the ones that create value for the customers. And the employees don't, aren't forced to work there. They do so voluntarily for their own gain. Investors invest because they're looking for returns and business has to produce uh, profits for the investors to want to continue to invest in the business. Uh, suppliers trade with the business and they, and, and I can tell you stories about all the suppliers that have begun trading in Whole Foods Market and, and then became very successful because we were a gateway for them selling all over the United States. And then there's the communities that we're part of. We provide businesses, create jobs. They, they, they do philanthropy, they give taxes to the communities they're in. Um, all of these constituencies are winning. It's not a win-lose game. It's not a game of trade-offs. It's a game where all of them are simultaneously winning. It's win-win-win. And so that's a different paradigm than the way people think about business. And if you talk about politics, it could be the same way. If we had political leadership that was seeking win-win-win all the time as their framework, that all of us are winning. All of us are winning. You're winning. I'm winning. We're all winning. If we create strategies for that, America will pull ahead. We'll get past where we are right now. As long as we're pitting in this war against each other, we're, we're going to be flailing around. We have to think about it differently. We need new thinking. We need conscious leadership. You're going to announce you're running for office right now. You can do it for the Commonwealth Club. You can, uh, we, you, this could be your platform, your big announcement. <laughs> I'm going to stick to business. I'm pretty good at that. I'm, I think I'm a pretty big, big failure as a politician. Speaking of business, we're getting some great questions uh, from the people logged on here. Uh, one of them is, how is Whole Foods adapting to changing consumer habits, especially now post-COVID? That's a great question. Are you changing what you have in the stores or, or, or how we're purchasing and how we're spending? What's the answer? Well, we certainly have changed during COVID. What we don't know is what it'll be like when we're post-COVID. I know that seems like a weird thought. We're going to someday be post-COVID, but we will be. I feel certain a year from now, we will be post-COVID and probably much sooner than that. But so during COVID, um, our online sales have tripled. <laughs> our, our prepared foods, our salad bars, our hot bars, uh, that drops 75%. I mean, it just disappeared. All the offices that would come in to eat lunch, they just closed down. We don't have any. We don't have any lunchtime prepared foods traffic, or very little. But our but our meat, our seafood, our produce, our grocery, they all exploded because people were at home cooking. They weren't going out to restaurants. 
And so they, they started buying more of these other foods. And, you know, we all know the story of toilet paper running out of stock and, and it took a while for the supply chain to adjust to that. But, and, and obviously hand sanitizers ran short there too, but now the market's adjusted for that as well. So it's definitely changed. And, and when we're post COVID people, they're going to come back to grocery stores in person more than, I mean, we'll still be buying online, but you know, less than we're buying now probably. And people are going to go back to restaurants and bars when they feel safe because we like going to restaurants and bars. We're social beings. We want, we don't want to social distance the rest of our lives. <laughs> we want to hug people and we want to shake hands and we want to be with our friends. And so once people feel safe from this virus, that's going to all return because that's just who we are. Hey, John, obviously your track record speaks for itself. It's such a successful company, but, but, but I do like to hear those dark days, those dark moments that help shape you. Uh, and perhaps you made a misstep and how did you recover from there? Uh, you talk about in the book in 2017, those dark days, I think it's Jana Partners, the New York hedge fund, uh, activist investors, they tried to kind of take over, um, but instead it led to the merger with Amazon. What stands out to you from that chapter of your life professionally and personally for that matter? Well, um, a lot. So I'll tell you the story. I'll tell the audience the story. So one way to think about this is the dark days that happened before then were back in 2008 and 2009 when we had that massive recession and the stock market collapsed and our stock price dropped 90% from where it was. And as a result, Whole Foods Market was selling as a public company for what was two times our, our own cash flow. You could have bought the whole company and paid for it with our own cash in just two years. So this was a very scary time for us. And we, we took in some private equity funds to give us liquidity. And then the, the, the world started to begin to come back again. And as that happened, um, our sales went way up. We went into double digit same store sales. Uh, 10%, 12% comps, and that's a very high number. And what happened as a result of that, the biggest mistake that Whole Foods ever made and is we should have been dropping our prices at that time, and we didn't do it. And we were so successful that we got so much new more, more new competition, and they began to underprice us, copied a lot of our marketing, got a lot of our products in. And so competition really increased. I remember what was the old, was the old joke, a whole paycheck, right? You go in there and you spend right. a lot of money. Exactly. And if we'd, start, if we'd cut our prices back in 2009 and 10 and 11, if we were coming back, we may never have gotten into the Jana problem. But we didn't do that. So that's a big mistake. That's a life lesson for me. Um, and also one of the things that we're correcting now with Amazon. Was but, there someone in the boardroom telling you, hey, John, uh, we suggest we slash prices and you said no? Or, or did you suggest, hey, maybe we, we cut prices and someone pushed back and said no? How was that decision made? It was like, Raj, it was such a heady time because remember, our stock price had dropped 90%. And now every quarter, we were having really strong same store sales and the stock price kept going up and up. And so it's like, it doesn't seem to be broken. Let's just keep doing the same stuff. That was our great opportunity because we could have lowered our prices then. And uh, our stock price wouldn't have gone up so much. Our investors might have been slightly less happy. But that was the right long-term move. We just didn't see it. And we didn't see it because times were so good. We didn't anticipate it. We didn't see what might happen down the road. But what happened was our competitors began to undercut us in price picked up more of our products, copied our marketing. And as a result, our same store sales slowed down, our profit growth slowed down, and our stock price began to fall. And that brought in the shareholder activist who then wanted to take over the board, change the management, and sell us off for the highest bidder. And that, that was a really difficult time. That was extremely difficult. Up until COVID, that was the most difficult time. Do you think you were going to be out altogether? Oh, they were, I think Jana would have sold us off to anybody that would have paid the highest dollar. And we tried, we went through several different scenarios. One was we, maybe we take the company private. And then what we needed, we knew what we needed to do was lower our prices. That was what Whole Foods needed to do. But you know what? That's not so easy to do when you're a public company. If you're selling something for a dollar and now you want to sell it for 90 cents, well, in the short term, your sales are going to go down. 
and your same store sales are going to go down because you're not getting a dollar, you're getting 90 cents now. Now, over time, customers will find out you have lower prices and you'll, you'll get it back. But that might take six months, nine months, a year. And the market's so short-term focused on next quarter, it was very difficult for us to do that. So we didn't know what to do. We tried all kinds of different win-win-win solutions. And we weren't sure. We talked to Warren Buffett. He wasn't interested. We'd take the company private. That was going to add so much debt that we thought that we might bankrupt ourselves. We talked to Albertsons as a potential acquirer, and that didn't work out, or we didn't, we didn't really want to merge with them. And we weren't sure what to do. And then we thought maybe we're just going to fight Jana. We're going to just fight him. We can, we can win. We can beat these guys. Um, and then one day, I just woke up. You know, I'd been, I'd been agonizing over what would be a win-win-win strategy. And I woke up one day, and first thing I thought of in the morning is, I know the answer. The answer is Amazon. I just knew it. And I thought, those guys, I think they want to get into grocery. They're a great technology company. They're wonderful retailers. I wonder if they'd be interested. It turned out they were very interested. We, we contacted them. Just a few days later, I flew to Seattle with my team. We met with Jeff Bezos and his team. And it was kind of love at first sight. We talked about all the things we could do together, how Whole Foods could lower its prices, think long-term again. <clears throat> and just soon after that, we, um, four days after that first meeting, they sent a whole team down to Austin. We continued the dialogue. And six weeks after that first meeting, we signed a merger agreement. Six weeks, the courtship, weeks. essentially. It was a whirlwind romance. What, what was that first meeting at Bezos' house? You, you were in his boathouse? What is a, what yeah, is we, a boathouse? So, <laughs> oh, forgive me, I don't know. Well, you won't be surprised to hear Jeff's got a pretty big house. house <laughs> yes, I do know that. And, and, and so the boathouse is on Lake Washington. It's just down from the main house. And uh, so that's where we met, because that would be very private and you know wouldn't interrupt the family or anything like that. So... We met there, we talked for about three hours, and uh, you know, the Whole Foods team was so impressed with the Amazon team. We thought, these guys are so smart, they, they think long-term, they seem like, they're not, they weren't the corporate suits that we thought we might be getting. These were just regular people that were um, really dedicated to building a great company. So, and speaking of that, you're also casual. Are you in jeans and a polo shirt, or, what, or is everyone suited up for this boathouse meeting? No, nobody was suited up. We, we were all in jeans and, and yeah, we were all casual. And uh, uh, it was a great conversation. You know, I always say that it's like when you fall in love, you have what I call the conversation that occurs <laughs> where you stay up all night. Yes. And you realize, man, I'm really, I'm really synced up with this person. This is fantastic. <laughs> well, that's what happened. It happened between us. And uh, I know when the Whole Foods team, after the meeting, three-hour meeting was over, we went into a restaurant to process what had just happened. We were looking at each other. It's like, God, those guys are incredible. They're so smart. They, they could finish our sentences for us. They really seemed to want to work with us. Yeah. And then it was like, gosh, did they like us too? Yeah, <laughs> right. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they did. They liked us too. That's, I found out later that they felt exactly the same way. They were so excited after the first meeting. And that's why we, we negotiated a quick deal and uh, we, got, we got married as quickly as we could. So, and it's, you know, hey, people ask me what it's like. Is it perfect? And the answer is, it's like being married. I mean, I've been married for 30 years. I love my wife all my heart I love about like 99% of everything about her but you know there's the one percent that drives me crazy even and 80% would be a big win on that it's a pretty big number I, I used to say 97% my wife gave me a hard time about that three yeah. percent well my wife's not here so I could say 80% we're okay <laughs> I hope she doesn't see the recording uh, what would you do differently with that deal because and I'm, I'm focusing on this deal just because such a high profile deal Amazon Whole Foods uh, going back now, back to 2017, it's been a few years. Would you go back and say, I wish we would have did a few part of the deal, deal parts differently? Is there something that stands out? Well, you always wonder whether you got the very best price you could have gotten. Uh, so you never know for sure. But I think we did. I think we got a good price. I think we, we got a better price. than. I mean, we didn't get as good a price as we hoped we might get, but we got a better price than I thought we might get. Um, but no, if you're asking me, if you could do it all over again, John, if you could go back in the time machine three years ago, would you still do the deal? 
And the answer is absolutely. It's been a really good deal for our company. It's, and as I talk in the book, it's been a win-win-win for all of our stakeholders. Our customers have gotten lower prices. Our team members, we increased our pay to $15 starting wage. 90,000 people got raises as a result of this deal. Um, our suppliers, people, the me, uh, a lot of media said that we were going to stop doing local suppliers. Quite the opposite. We've done even more local suppliers than ever before. And a lot of them now get on the Amazon network. So it's been great for our suppliers. The investors got a big premium over what the whole food stock price was like. And our foundations and our philanthropy, our community commitments, Amazon's been very supportive of all that. So it was a win, 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 win deal. If I could go back 11 years in the future of my time, in my, in my time machine, I'd go back and I would, uh, I would change our, I changed our pricing 11 years ago. And uh, we may never have had Jan if that had happened and Whole Foods would be independent today. Yeah, we got some great questions again. Let me get through some of these questions. Can you talk about a time when you leaned into your conscious leadership style to make a tough decision where you said, all right, I have two ways to go here. Let me go the conscious way in terms of leadership. And what was that? Well, I just gave you one example, right? Amazon. That was a tough selling the company that you've created to somebody else is there's no harder decision an entrepreneur ever makes than that. So well, I make this joke uh, that basically, you know, we act, we literally, I'm like the father of Whole Foods and we, we, you know, my daughter got married to the richest man in the world. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, uh, what, what is, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you know, I mean, there've been plenty of other examples where you had to make difficult decisions. You had to lean in. So uh, back when I talked about the two, well, the 2009 situation was an example because we took private equity money in the, uh, from uh, Leonard Green Partners. That was a difficult decision. And we took it in to, in some ways to try to protect the company from a, a hostile takeover. I said we could be bought at two times our cash flow. We wanted to get liquidity and some, some money in friendly hands. But that wasn't an easy decision to make. That was, that was a struggle because we took them on our board of directors and, and uh, we weren't sure what we were going to get out of that, but it worked out good. Um, I told the story already about 2001 when I had a coup attempt, but I didn't talk about how that, how I leaned into that because I made a real commitment after that, that I was going to be a different kind of leader, that I was going to be far more. I was going to bond closer to my team. I was going to be, a, I was going to step up in my leadership. I was going to have to become more conscious. I was going to have to become a better leader. If I wanted to stay as the CEO of Whole Foods, I needed to become a much better leader. The what were you lacking? What were you lacking, John? Looking back on it now. Well, we won't call it what I'm lacking, but maybe what was less developed. How's that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I was probably, uh, I was younger. I was, I've, you know, an entrepreneur, very driven, maybe not as patient, not as good a listener, not as, not as, not quite as compassionate uh, I didn't lead as much with love. The biggest difference between then and now is leading more with love and uh, really making that a big part of how I want to show up in the world. So I really had to develop that. Love is not just an emotion. Love is a skill. You develop love over time because think about the different qualities of love that we talk about in the book. There's, there's generosity. There's gratitude. There's care, care for others. There's compassion. There's forgiveness. There's all types of different ways that you have to practice those virtues to get good at it, to get more skilled. It loves a skill. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. So I dedicated myself to practicing that and getting more skilled in love. Um, but you know, the biggest mistakes that I've ever made in business, and I think this is probably true for most leaders, they're people mistakes. You, you, you promote the wrong person. You pick the wrong person. And then what are you going to do about it? How do you, uh, how do you deal with that? The best mistake, the, the best decisions I've ever made have been people decisions and the worst decisions I've ever made were people decisions because ultimately your team is what leads to success. I mean, we talk about in the book at one point about how we tend to romanticize a few geniuses like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Sergey Brin and Larry Page at Google. And uh, yeah, these guys are brilliant but they're successful because they have great teams that are, that they've helped develop 
that are that are that are leading the company to these high places. I mean, I can tell you, Jeff Bezos is a genius for no doubt about it. But <laughs> there are a lot, a lot of really smart people at Amazon that work with Jeff, and they really help make Amazon the great company that it is. People like Jeff Wilkie and and, and Dave Clark and and so many others that I've met. Um, uh, uh, Doug Harrington and Peter Krywek, and there's tons of them. They're just really, really capable people. You, you wrote about Jeff Wilkie in the book, which was an interesting story about how he just stayed true to what he wanted to do. And eventually the success or as the society determined success, it caught up to him, but he stayed true to his beliefs. Jeff's an extraordinary man. He's got extremely high integrity, whip smart. Uh, it's been a, I feel very honored to have been able to work with him. I'm very, he's leaving the company. He's retiring. I'm very bummed out about that. And he's uh, one of the CEOs at, at Amazon, one of the co-CEOs, correct? Yeah. Um, from the viewers now, from everyone in the audience, uh, well, here's one. What do you admire most about Jeff Bezos or Amazon? Uh, you know what I admire? Jeff's a, I admire a few things about Jeff. So first of all, he's a, he's a, I'm an entrepreneur and Jeff's an entrepreneur in his bones. Uh, and I really like that about Jeff. Um, secondly, I find Jeff pretty easy to talk to. He's, he doesn't, uh, he's, when I, not that I talk with Jeff that often, but when I have talked with him, he's very, he kind of just shows up as a very authentic guy. I think Jeff Bezos is very authentic. And I like that about him. And uh, I think third, you know, Jeff's really smart. And so I like smart people too. Yeah. Um, so, Amazon, I like the way Amazon, I love many things about Amazon. I love how long, they think long-term and they're, and very few businesses think as long-term as Amazon. They're thinking out 10 years. And I remember having a conversation about like, I don't, how are we going to be able to do, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is, but I was saying, I don't see how we can do that. We don't even have that technology. How are we going to do that? And they said, we're going to invent it and we will have it in three years. And guess what? Three years. Three years. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just whisper it to us? No one's listening. <laughs> okay, we'll go through. Continue here. Um, what is the best professional advice that you received? Again, these are audience questions. What's the best professional advice that you received? And I'll follow up. Who did it come from? You know, probably the best professional advice I ever got was my was my mentor, and that was my dad. You know, when I started the business. I had absolutely almost zero business experience. Um, I didn't take any business classes in college. I, I was studying humanities primarily. Um, so I leaned pretty heavily on my dad to help me uh, from age 24 to about age 40, about a 16 year period. And, you know, honestly, the best, the best advice I think my dad ever gave me about business, he said, John, you should try to make everything you do from the very beginning, uh, try to make it positive cash flow, make it so it's not burning cash, but bringing cash in. Because if you're burning cash, you're always going to have to go back to these venture capitalists and they're going to get more and more control of the business. And eventually they'll take control of the business and they'll throw you out, you know, and bring in a professional manager. It almost happened. That's it. Well, that was after the VCs left. It didn't happen with the VCs. Got it. VCs, uh, Whole Foods went public in 1992, and they were pretty much off our board by 1994. And this happened 2000, 2001 when the coup happened. So that wasn't with the VCs. The VCs went away pretty happy. They made a ton of money on their investment in Whole Foods. Um, so, but my dad was right to not burn cash. And so many entrepreneurs today, I see it. They take venture capital money in and they talk about a burn rate and they're just trying to scale up and they're not trying to make money and they get, they get diluted down and they get tossed off the, they get tossed. I often call venture capitalists. They're like hitchhikers with credit cards. <laughs> you pick them up in your car and as long as you get them to where they want to go, they all pay for the gas. Yeah. But if you get off track, if you get a little bit lost, they hijack the car and throw you out on the side of the road. I've seen that happen to tons of entrepreneurs over the years, and I didn't want that to happen to me. So instead, we made good money, took the company public, and we got the venture capitalists out of the car. Resonates, especially around here in the Silicon Valley. Appreciate those comments. Uh, from the audience again, um, as a business leader, what concerns you the most about the post-COVID economy? Good question. What concerns me about the post? 
I don't have a concern about the post-COVID economy. I have a concern about the COVID economy, which, uh, which again, I, I mean, so many people have lost their jobs. Um, I mean, it's it's hard times. So many people have lost their jobs, and, and so many of my friends have have had lost their businesses. They just couldn't sustain the long-term lockdown that we did. So, I think once we move past this this virus, America is very resilient, and we will come back and we will rebuild. And I'm just eager for us to get to the rebuilding stage because we're still kind of limping along. Schools aren't fully open and and, uh, people are really scared. So post-COVID, what concerns me? Um, uh, Well, we've taken a massive amount of debt on from the government Mm -hmm. and that's gonna result probably in higher taxes, higher interest rates, maybe inflation. So I'm worried about that, that concerns me. Yeah, sure. Um, from the audience again, besides higher wages, what should companies do or offer to their employees to retain their employees? Money is, is um, I'm not going to say it's not important. Of course, it's important. But you know what p- most people want in business? Most people want a sense of purpose. They want to know that their work is making a difference, that they're actually contributing something to value in the world, making the world a better place. So it's important that businesses give people a sense of purpose and meaning. And secondly, people want to know that somebody cares about them. Nobody wants to work for a place that nobody cares about them. So the two biggest things we can do is help people sense a purpose in their work and also that they have a sense of community, that they're cared about, that they're loved, that, that they matter, that they matter as individuals. That's sometimes forgotten and, and, uh, it's, it's foolish because people want love and they want to be and they want to matter and they want to feel like they're making a contribution. If you do those things, money is a lot less important. What CEOs or companies do you admire right now? Maybe not these big global Amazons and Teslas, but maybe some, some smaller companies that you kind of keep your eye on just to say, hey, I like what that woman or that man is doing leading that company. The, the, the challenge in that is there's a ton of companies I admire that nobody on this call's ever heard of because they're private companies. They're part of the conscious capitalism movement. And uh, I mean, they're amazing. I mean, one example is uh, uh, Kaiser Commercial Real Estate in Phoenix, where they're, they're, Jonathan Kaiser wrote a book. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He wrote a book called You Don't Have to Be Ruthless to Win. And his whole real estate strategy is service. He, he's a servant leader. He isn't trying to, real estate is seen as this cutthroat business, and he's sure. taking the exact opposite approach. So I really admire that. I admire what Rand Stegan is doing in Dallas. He has a, he has a business that's uh, called Stegan Associates, and it's a leadership development business where they're helping leaders to learn and grow. And uh, Whole Foods has sent, I don't know, 20 leaders through his program, and it's been very transformative for them. So I deeply admire what he's doing. Um, There's many, many others, but, you know, they're just smaller businesses because these entrepreneurs, they're not public. They they get the purpose. They get the stakeholder theory. They get the lead with love, and they're transforming their businesses. And uh, it gives me great hope that the future – entrepreneurs are going to be thinking differently and do things differently than maybe has been done in the past. Are you done learning? You're not an old man. Are you done learning? Are you done building, innovating? What do you want to do? Hey, I love the fact that I'm not an old man. I'm not. Rod, you're, you're a super cool dude, man. (laughs) Um, No, it's all about, I, I see life as an adventure. It's not very long. We, we, when we're young, we think it's long, but it's not young and not, not long as you get older, you discover that, but it's an adventure. And it, it, it's so short that we shouldn't play it safe. It's an adventure and we need to learn and grow. We need to follow our heart. We need to follow our passions. Um, we need, I just think you shouldn't get to the end of the life and have a lot of regrets. Gosh, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd tried that. I wish I hadn't been so timid. I believe in, in being bold and going for what you care about in life. Follow your passions because, because that's what gives your life meaning. And purpose. So, um, if once you find your own purpose in life, life just it just gets so interesting and fun. And so, find your purpose. You suggest to your readers return to original sources of inspiration. That that was interesting. 
Uh, meaning go back and what, refer to old books that maybe you read when you were 20 or 15 or 40, uh, mentors, heroes, poems, yeah. explain that. We oftentimes, um, you just said it actually, Rod, you caught it. It's, it's uh, the things that have helped make us who we are, the things that you've helped me revisit, even in this conversation tonight, some of the decisions that we made in the past that help form our company, Whole Foods, but also help form me as a human being. And to revisit that, that's why journaling can be important. Journaling is important not only because you're helping crystallize your thinking and your thoughts, but you're also creating a record of where your consciousness was at a certain time in your life. And to go back and read that um, is interesting because for one thing, you'll see that you've grown a lot since then. You're a different person now. But you'll also read it and you'll think, you know, I knew some stuff back when I was 30 that I didn't think I knew. And, and so you see more continuity. It makes you more conscious. When you go back and read books that had a big impact on you, you reread them. It's like part of you is thinking, why did this book have such a big impact on me? It seems obvious. But it's only obvious because it had a big impact on you and you internalized it. And now it's become part of who you are. I can think of three books right now I want to reread from my 20s and 30s. Uh, conversations with people? Uh, someone that helped you maybe? Is that part of this, going back and talking to a mentor from 15, 20 years ago? You know, the, you know who's had the biggest impact on me besides my father, without a doubt, is my wife. I mean, I think you grow. I think relationships teach you more than anything else. And the people that you're closest to, who know you the best, who love you, they can tell you the things nobody else will ever tell you, yeah. right? And your best friends will tell you stuff when you're, when, you're, when you're getting arrogant or you're being a jerk. You, know, you need people that love you to tell you, you know, John, shut up, dude. You don't know what you're talking about. I can't believe you said that. You really hurt her feelings. Were you, what were you thinking when you did that? You should go apologize. I mean, we need people like that in our lives that help us to grow up and be, be more of an adult. So my wife has taught me a lot. I, I like to joke that I'm, the, I'm her big life project. Her job <laughs> is, is to make me. She's doing person. a pretty good job. She needs a raise and she's doing a pretty good job. Doing a pretty good job. But if you ask her, she'll tell you her work's only about half done. <laughs> And your friends and your, and your family. If you have children, children are great teachers. They will teach you a lot too. They, they certainly are. And journaling is interesting. I used to journal just personally when I, in my 20s and I stopped. I, I, I think I want to I get back into it. because Pick it up what, again. You don't, have to do it, you don't have to do it every single day. Just do it some. It'll be, it's a good habit just to spend a, an hour a week. Hey, do you go back into your stores daily, weekly? And are you, do you identify yourself? Or I mean, are you an undercover boss? And what do you look for if you do it? Well, one of the things I hate about COVID has been the lockdowns because um, I haven't been touring the stores very much. And, uh, and frankly, if you're the CEO of a big company like Whole Foods, mostly you just hear about problems every day. But when you go tour stores and you connect with the team members and the customers, that's like totally energizing for me. I love doing it. I love doing it. I love meeting the team members. And uh, I'm not undercover. They, they, even if I, usually they know I'm coming and they fix the store up, but if they don't know I'm coming, they still within, it's like a joke. How fast will the word circulate? John's in, John's in the store. Do they have some sort of code? Like, you know, I think I've heard, I've heard some of the stores have a code. They do. <laughs> I don't <laughs> but, know what it is. But, you know, I love doing that because the life of our business is in our stores. And I love being with our team members. I mean, I just love connecting with them because they're so amazing and they're taking care of our customers. So I've already decided since COVID's get lingering longer than I'm just touring, I've got tours set up in the States that I can tour. And I'm in Texas right now. And a lot of the States are have quarantined Texans. They won't let us into their States, but in the ones that I can travel to, I'm starting to visit the stores again, masked up, social distancing, not hugging anybody. I'm not shaking hands, but I'm still connecting with people. And uh, I love it. Nothing better. Uh, from uh, someone in the audience, and I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, but we'll give it a shot. Your college roommate said you were a big reader, so much so that you missed a lot of class. 
what are the most influential books for you? Is that true? And what are the books? <laughs> I wonder which college roommate that was. <laughs> oh, nice. No, I mean, I hated going to class uh, because think about it. I could absorb information a lot faster reading than I could listening to some professor, you know, talk for an hour. And I was like, it was too boring. So I, I just liked reading a lot more than going to lectures. But, um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about my college education, which is I made a huge decision when I was about 19 years old. I was on track to get a degree in philosophy at the University of Texas. But in every in everything, you have to take uh, required classes, right, to get your degree. And I was taking one of those required classes, and I hated it. I did not want to take this class. I hated the class. I hated the professor. I hated the books. I hated everything about it. But I thought, well, I got to take this class. So I'm in, I got to I got to hunker down if I'm going to get my degree. And but I had this argument that went on about a week. I don't want to read these books. I don't want to take this class. You have to. You have to. Yeah. Your parents, mom and dad, are going to be so mad at you if you don't get this degree. But then one night, I stood up. And I threw this book on the ground that I was trying to read and said, I'm not going to read this book. I'm not going to take this class. I dropped the class the next day. When I did that, my, my life totally changed. It changed because- You never got the degree. I never got a degree. I have 120 hours of electives. <laughs> I just took classes I was interested. I audited classes. And I, but I have a great education. It was just completely self-directed. But once I made that decision, I mean, my parents were very angry. I got, I, I yeah, no, didn't give me financial support after that. But this was a time when, believe it or not, you could go to the University of Texas and it was $100 a semester for yeah, tuition. Sure. And, and so it was no problem. I could work part-time. And, uh, but I did exactly what I wanted to do. But why that's important in this story is I took control of my life at that point. From that point onward, I just did what I wanted to do. And that led me to Whole Foods. I moved in this vegetarian co-op when I was 23 years old. I wasn't a vegetarian, but I moved in because I thought I'd meet cool people in a vegetarian co-op, and I did. Met my girlfriend. A year after that, we started up Saferway, our first store, and uh, I'd found the meaning of my life. I became the food buyer for the co-op. I got all interested in natural and organic, became a vegetarian, and I found my purpose in my life. And I wouldn't have found that if I hadn't started taking control of my life and doing what I wanted to do rather than what everybody else wanted me to do, particularly my parents. Two follow-up questions on that. Do you remember the book that you threw down? It was some philosophical tome. It was a philosophy book that was so boring, but I do not remember. I think it was a, maybe it was a Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Wow. Very hard book to read. I don't it's recommend it. Pure reason. And uh, as University of Texas in Austin, they're, uh, I'm assuming they've reached out to you and said, come on back, speak to the school, and here's your honorary degree. We'll make you a PhD, Professor Mackey. I've, I've gone back to UT and spoken a number of times in the business school, but uh, they've yet to give me an honorary uh, degree. I think I may need to make a larger donation to them. To <laughs> we, could, we could broker that. Hey, as we wrap this up, by the way, this is, uh, we appreciate just your candid comments through all of this. I think all our audience does uh, as well. Um, just in terms of your own health and wellness, I know you're getting into meditation a lot and self-reflection. What are some things that you would pass along to business CEOs or just anyone on this call? We have a health chapter on that book. It's chapter eight, revitalize yourself. And the first tip I'll pass on to you is get more sleep. People, we, we, we romanticize in the United States, people that get by and work 70, 80 hours a week and only get four hours of sleep and drink, you know, half a dozen triple espressos to keep, you know, get going. We're just burning up. People are just burning themselves out. You need to get seven to nine hours of sleep and it needs to be high quality sleep. So that's the first thing. Secondly, don't kid yourself. The diet you eat makes a huge difference. So you should be eating, you know, I wrote a book called The Whole Foods Diet, so I recommend you yeah. read it. <laughs> it's, you, eat, you eat real natural whole foods, and it's mostly plants. You can eat some meat, but mostly plants, and it should be whole foods. And if you do that, you'll supercharge your immune system. If you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, you get a super heart, uh, healthy immune system, and you pretty much begin to resist illnesses of all kinds. I just almost never get sick, and slows the aging process down, too. Um, and you got to exercise, right? But then you also have to manage. If you're a CEO and you're building a business, stress is so heavy. If you don't know how to manage stress, it's just going to eat you alive. 
you're going to, you're going to get heart palpitations and you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be, your blood pressure is going to go up. You're going to just destroy your body. So you have to learn how to manage stress and you meditation is a great way to do it. But there are other things, music, going for walks in nature, going for long runs, whatever you can do to manage stress is important. If you're going to, if you're, I've been doing it for 42 years. I learned how to manage stress. And if you don't, you'll be a, You'll be on the side of the road someplace. It's hard now, John. You say everything that's, that's accurate, and I agree and believe it. I think most people do. However, in this pandemic, we just started the call by saying this is the toughest thing we're going to go through in our generation, in our lifetimes. We Whether hope. you're a CEO or you know, you're not. Whether you're a, 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 a team member at Whole Foods. Whatever you're, the spectrum is, people are under stress. They're underemployed, perhaps. Their kids are at home learning. There's internet issues at home. There's just a lot of stress 24-7 around here. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Really hard. You know, I, I, I'll make an observation. I've watched two things happen. They're opposite for people in COVID. One group of people, and I'll put myself in this group of people, um, it's like, okay, this, this is serious stuff going on. I got to make sure I get as healthy as possible. I don't, I don't want to get the stupid disease. And if I get it, I want my immune system to be able to resist it. So I just, I just got super conscious about doing all the things I just said, eating a super healthy diet, getting my exercise every day, making sure that I was getting enough sleep and um, doing more meditation and uh, uh, just really, really taking care of myself. Cause I thought my best way to fight this disease off is to be as healthy as I possibly can. It's like gearing up for a fight and getting as good a shape as I could get in. That's what we're in right now. Seriously. That's right. Exactly. And, but I saw other people go the opposite direction. It was so stressful and so unpleasant that they started eating more junk food. They, they started abusing themselves with alcohol and drugs and a lot of toxins. They didn't exercise. They, 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 they were so anxious and fearful and scared that they didn't manage their stress well. So um, that made them hardly much more vulnerable to the virus and hurt their immune system. So, it, you know, suicides are up, domestic violence is up. Uh, uh, kids are not getting the same kind of education they were getting before. It's been incredibly stressful and we've got to move past it. We've got to get back to normality and maybe that's not going to happen for a lot of people until there's a vaccine, so people will feel safe again. I've already decided. I'm I'm out in the world again. I'm masking up, of course. I'm doing. I'm following the rules, but I'm I'm living my life again because life goes on. There's no there's no complete safe way to live. I'm just living as safe as I can while I'm living. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired of hiding. I'm not hiding anymore. I know it's tough. Okay, a couple more minutes here as we wrap it up from the forum, from the audience. Are there any new innovations in grocery technology that's sparking your curiosity or that you're looking into implementing? And yes, give us some trade secrets. Yeah, I can't tell you what we're going to be implementing. We are going to be doing some real cool stuff in the next couple of years. Really Tangible excited. differences that I can see, or is it Absolutely. behind the scenes stuff? Tangible stuff you'll be able to see. Um, you know, I'll tell you a story. So when this merger was first announced, the general thing was, oh my God, Amazon's going to completely transform grocery. And then a year passes and Harry Potter hadn't waved his magic wand yet. So nothing's going to happen. So people tend to overestimate the impacts of technology in the short run, and they tend to underestimate it over the longer term. But Amazon's continued to innovate and continued to learn and grow and, uh, and continue to invent. And there are transformative technologies that are coming to grocery. I just can't tell you what they are, but they'll be manifesting over the next five years or so. Well, like you said, I want to do this, and then they just invent it, and they just make it, correct, Amazon? Yeah, well, i give you an example. I mean, not for grocery, but that technology is going to transform our lives. It's self-driving cars. Yeah. You know, it, it is, it's happening. I mean, Tesla is there. Really, they've made so many innovations in their cars. They're largely self-driving uh, other than, you know, you got to keep your hands on the steering wheel, but that's going to be, that's what's going to happen in cars. We're, I, I think America 20 years from now are mostly electrical cars that are self-driving and uh, that'll be completely transformative, better for the environment, less automobile accidents. Um, an old geezer like me in 20 years, if I'm still alive, will not have to uh, 
be killing people because I'm not fit to drive anymore. You'll be around. And in Texas, there are no cars. It's all trucks. So we'll get trucks out to you <laughs> ASAP. Hey, Tesla's got a truck, a cyber truck on the way. I know. You're two years away from that. Uh, John, it's a pleasure. Well, we look forward to, I think, uh, I've read the book. I think a lot of people will get uh, a lot of joy and encouragement and some knowledge from your book. Uh, so we appreciate your time. And next time you come out to the Bay Area, to the actual Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco, please drop by and don't be a stranger. Thanks, Raj. You know, we end uh, Whole Foods meetings with appreciation. So let me give you one. Oh. You did a fantastic job tonight. You are very, very seasoned professional. And I wish you were a news anchor that I could watch regularly because I like your intelligence and your poise and your confidence. It was a very pleasure to talk with you tonight. I, I appreciate that. And uh, I appreciate your good energy. Uh, I'll take it right back to you. John Mackey, the co-founder and CEO of Whole Foods. Have a great week ahead and uh, we'll see you down the road, John. Thanks, Raj. You take care. Okay, what a great conversation there. We encourage you to pick up your copy of John's new book at your local bookstore. If you'd like to more uh, to watch more of our virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club, our efforts here, please visit us online, commonwealthclub.org. I'm Raj Mathai. Thank you, and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.